This is Insomniac Leopard. My name is Josh Wagner, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. In his essays, Michel de Montaigne proclaims, I study myself more than any other subject. That is my metaphysics. That is my physics. For Montaigne, the human is the locus of experience. There is nothing outside of the subject, no nature, no tables, and definitely not a midnight Easter mass. Whatever of our contemporary obsession with the post-human, the non-sensible, and the otherwise than human is merely a distraction or an outcropping of the all-too-human. No matter how we try to escape ourselves and our mortality, reality itself is only composed of the irreducible and thoroughly confusing mode of existence we call experience. When we have an experience, and by experience I mean a sense of being untouched by time, when the axis of the earth stops spinning for a split second, something happens. And I don't have the language to tell you what that thing is. Is. Or to co-opt Brian Misumi's vague tongue, something's happening. Try as we might to gain an observer's remove, that's what we find ourselves in the midst of it. There's happening doing. And as this year's Easter flies by in the midst of a pandemic, I fixate on the idea of a concept made flesh and blood. A concept that must be made into experience because it is living before it is anything else. What is given and what is taken away in this interchange between idea and flesh? Why does life also imply death? And what of the hanging middle point where we find ourselves, the untotalizable point on the spectrum, neither moving towards nor away from anything. These are the kinds of questions I put to this week's guests, Alex, an art history professor from Stanford University, and Emily, a grad student in theology at UChicago. A St. Louis native, Alex works in the intersection of photography, history, memory, ghosts, and the invisible. His favorite films include The Thin Red Line, The Curse of the Cat People, and Meet Me in St. Louis, and he just published Fierce Poise, an intensive study of Helen Frankenthaler's 1950s in New York. I first met Emily on a hallucinatory walk after a seminar on German modernism, which soon spilled into attending several academic conferences together. Now she's an incorrigible wanderer thinking about how to educate the senses to receive divine grace properly. She's chosen today's main attraction, Diego Velasquez's 1632 painting, Cristo Crucificado, or Christ Crucified. Welcome to the podcast, Alex and Emily. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have both of you here. Just to start out, I really have to ask you guys, what's been the most influential, riveting work that people should read or look at but haven't heard of yet? The Bible. Does that count as something that people haven't heard of, Emily? I think it counts as something that everyone has heard of, but very few people actually end up reading. Is there a particular like passage or part of the Bible that you like want to flag as being re- revelatory for you? I think it would be interesting for people to read it from cover to cover. That's what I did when I was 13 years old, and we had just moved to Palo Alto. And I had no friends, so I needed a project. And I was a little confused by all of the numbers that happen in numbers, <laughs> but I was grateful for every narrative that I found. And getting to the Gospels was like climbing the peak of the mountain. It's like a Dante. If they go down to go up, to make it through the, the ballast, then you ascend to peak. Well, I can't pretend to quite as august a reference as my colleague here, but I was thinking actually of a religious text, something that no one's ever heard of or read. I think of this novel from 1896 in America called The Damnation of Theron Ware. Do you know that, Josh? I've never heard of that. 
Well, yeah, then my point is made because very few people have read this book, but it's a fantastic novel. It's about a Protestant minister who is kind of a decent person, but a guileless and confused young man at the same time who falls under the sway of these very sensuous Catholics in this small American town or city, which is implicitly Utica, New York, where the writer Harold Frederick was a newspaper man for a while. It's called Octavius, New York. But anyone who reads it says, oh, wow, this is a fantastic book. But it's unknown, though still in print, I will say. What about it draws your attention? You know, great question. First of all, I have a copy. I don't think it's a first edition, but I did get a copy of it at Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon in 1994, which I still have downstairs. Kind of like a cheap print version of it, but still from the 1890s, which I adore. I think in part, it's one of the books that shows the long anticipatory projection of Hawthorne in American literature, because I think just from my plot, Plot synopsis, you can probably tell it has a Hawthorne quality, but it's, of course, from half century after The Scarlet Letter, etc. But I think it's the kind of fall from innocence of an American Adam. That's partly it. I think the portrayal of a kind of sensuous Catholic immediacy of faith is really seductive and is actually quite literally seductive in the book because there's a red-haired young woman named Celia Madden who Theron Ware, who is married, by the way, falls for. And I think I'm also attracted to American places too. And when I mentioned to you Utica, New York, and then this fictitious town, Octavius, New York, I can really see it. You know, and I think these provincial but very profound tragedies, I think I respond to, too. But, you know, I've never taught that book and never really thought what I would say, though I often mention it in conversations like this as something that I care about. In fact, I was interviewed by someone from the Washington Post for my Frankenthaler book recently. And in the sort of small talk phase of our conversation before the interview started in earnest, we actually were talking about the damnation of Theron Ware. Philip Kennicott, the writer, was like, oh yeah, that book is so great. And he said, I actually give it as a present to people when I want to make a literary gift. For my humble Americanist heart, I uh, I like it. Yeah, and maybe this is a good point to transition to our main topic for today, which is Diego Velasquez's 1632 painting, Christ and the Cross. And Emily, um, you chose this painting for us to talk about today. It's hanging in your bedroom. And so I just have to ask, what is it meant to you? Well, I have it in my bedroom because I found it at a nun garage sale in D.C. And it was almost about to be booted. I came in and just thought it looked really cool. And actually, it was first up in my room at my mom's house and really freaked her out. She, like most Americans, is really off-put by the sight of a crucifixion with an actual body on it. But I was looking at it again today and then thinking about how it's Holy Week. As I contemplated the painting, I noticed how tender the body was and the way that the blood seemed impelled by this gravity. 
reality. It was very realistic blood. I think a poet friend of mine has said that he's never seen a convincing tear, but those drops of blood gathering at the pierced hands and feet and the way they drip and hang is something that catches my eye. And I should say to pass the conversation to Professor Nemirov, I seem to recall in a lecture that perhaps you said that Velasquez's crucifixion was the last, in your estimation, plausible crucifixion in the history of art. That might be wrong. From what I remember, you may have shown some slides with unconvincing art from the period. Adams's and Eves's who don't look particularly Adams-y or Eves-y. Right. You know, that could be true. Those are pictures from the Paris salons from the 1860s, what you're talking about there. But I'm also thinking, Emily, of Goya's crucifixion from about 1780, which is clearly riffing on Velasquez's uh, crucifixion and which, you know, is, is nothing compared to the pictures like the 3rd of May 1808 that Goya would go on to make or the disasters of war uh, and which may may have indeed been the threshold work I spoke of, namely one that is either the first disingenuous crucifixion or the last genuine one, or maybe a little bit of both from 1780. If you if you do a little homespun art historical comparison on your screen, you'll see that they're in dialogue, but something has changed. There's no blood in the Goya. That's interesting. It's interesting, Emily, you talk about the blood in the Velazquez. That's a wonderful detail. It makes me think of two things. One is how thin the streams and almost stripes of blood are, uh, which implies then a kind of light heaviness to or light gravity. Um, in other words, the quality of gravity that you're speaking about is is somehow mixed with a kind of delicacy at the same time. The, the, the blood that's gushing, you know, is much more, it looks much thicker, more coagulated from the feet and on the wood below the feet seems of a different kind, you know, like a thicker gravity, whereas the wound up above from it emits a, a lighter fall of blood. So yes, just two thoughts there. Yeah, and I really like how you're bringing out this idea of like lightness and heaviness or light and dark. The painting itself even touches that very clearly. The, the background, you have this very, very dark background out of which Christ's like light body emerges. And there seems to be some kind of tension between these two, these two registers. The black of the backdrop makes me think of the blackness of one's own closed eyelids and the idea of a Christ that appears at all times. So a line that I really adore from T.S. Eliot is from one of his lesser quoted poems, Preludes, where he talks about how he's touched by fancies that curl and cling, the notion of an infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. And I think it, it's fascinating to think about the Velasquez as on the cusp of the total irrelevance of the cross and maybe Maybe it's the opportunity of that moment in history, a moment we're still living in, of the cosmic Christ. So on the one hand, the scenes, if you compare them to the crucifixions of the early Renaissance with that gold backdrop, or with, with the familiar cast of characters and a more historically, I guess, situated backdrop, maybe this is a moment where that Christ flies off the wall and into our own closed eyes, or not. Maybe related to that, I think of this as a life-size picture, as far as I can tell, and therefore probably one in which the illusion that this actually is Jesus, not just a representation of Jesus, is promulgated, is put forth. So just in the way that the blood we're talking about is, of course, paint, red paint, but it's really almost impossible in your mind to separate the paint from the blood. They're they're one. They're eucharistically the same thing. The whole 
whole presentation of the body aspires to be more than just an image of, of the body, but to be that body sculpturally in depth. I can imagine, for example, that this might have been shown in a darkened setting such that the background of the picture merges with the wall the picture hung from. And for that reason, it's very seductive to me. So to Emily's point about the image becoming a mental conception or sort of flying into the space between our eye and eyelid. I love that. But in my credulous way, I'm just thinking that this is yet another one of these magical 17th century paintings that aspires to collapse the distinction between a representation and the world. And not only to create religious conviction by means of that sleight of hand, but to, I don't know, do something subtler even, I don't know, which is to cause a kind of faith or belief generally in in revelations of all kinds, you know. Uh, and there's something about the simplicity, the iconic or ceremonial simplicity of the design with no other figures, no henchmen, no, no attendants, no grieving followers that creates this immediacy of encounter that um, I think I've always found powerful. And I, I mentioned to Emily and to you, I think, Josh, that Emily's choice of a picture is almost uncanny in the sense that when I was 22 at the Art Institute of Chicago, I took my girlfriend actually to see the Zerberon painting of the crucified Christ, which is from five years earlier and looks very similar to this and is huge. And it was not on display. And I insisted probably in a somewhat immature manner so much that they actually let us go backstage to see the painting, which was divested of its, you know, translucent plastic wrap and um, delivered to us, though it's maybe at least as relevant that I had no means of really understanding why I liked it or wanted to see it that way. But maybe Emily's choice of this picture helps me much belatedly to, to think about my reasons. I wonder, Josh, you being the fabulous literary historian that I know you to be, if you recall when T.S. Eliot pinpointed the time of the dissociation of sensibility that he speaks of. Because listening to your comments about an artwork as a means of almost causing belief, I might be misquoting you, reminds me again of Eliot and his idea of the objective correlative, um, the, the notion that a certain combination of phrases unfolding in time or in the world of painting, layers of, of paint, that it could somehow cause something real to happen. And tying to that, this this idea that there was a time in history when I can't remember what the sensibilities were, perhaps intellect and feeling, that in Eliot's mind became uncoupled. And for him, this was a disaster. Right. And so I think Eliot's talking about the metaphysical poets when he's talking about this association of sensibility. I think somewhere else he talks about in terms of like a catalyst and that the poet, him or herself, is just part of the thing that allows the reaction to happen. And the reaction between the senses, the, the words on the page, and the viewer outside are entangled together to create something that's you can't define by either, either one. Which I think why I, I love this idea of Velasquez jumping off the page to be very compelling. Is there something about you coming to a canvas that allows it to have that effect on you? Is it in the canvas itself? and the interaction? And is that even the right kind of question to be asking? 
Well, I really like this idea of the catalyst that Emily mentions. I hadn't thought of it quite like that, but um, I would say if the work is ceremonial, if the edges are distinct, the figure symmetrically centered, etc., and if, again, all anecdote is reduced and stilled, then the chances of the work catalyzing uh, perhaps are increased, at least for me, where I would feel more, you know, I would believe more readily that the image was meant for me and that it comes into existence with my mind's eye at the moment I perceive it as a as a reality, an objective correlative over there apart from me, which yet becomes extremely personal and then shapes my life accordingly. I'm thinking about this as I sit on the fence <laughs> about converting to Catholicism. Big day would be either a vigil, Holy Saturday. I was just at an art museum with someone who seemed very keen on the art having an effect on them. And I wonder if our own shadow, as we walk into a museum or a church, almost as if wanting something to happen, keeps anything from happening. The quandary I have is that I don't want my conversion to Catholicism to be a choice, just as I don't want my ability to be moved by painting or poem to be a choice. I'm looking for a moment of obedience, so it feels wrong to orchestrate it. Then again, this might be hopelessly idealistic, and it, it might be a form of pride of its own species. I don't know. I understand that. I think that, yeah, one would ideally simply come upon a picture that would be unaware of one's presence. I think this picture is maybe one of those, so that there isn't an atmosphere of expectation or solicitation. It just is. And one receives into oneself something without a kind of undue ritual of expectation. What's interesting to me looking at this painting in that respect is that although Jesus seems not to know that we're there. I look at the knot holes or the knots in the wood, let's say, of the crossbar, and I see how I like they are particularly on the left. And as if in some almost surrealist way, like Dali way, you know, the picture is keeping an eye out for us, even as it feigns being unaware, sort of peeking through the dark. And I don't know how that that changes the picture's relation to what Emily is talking about, a conversion or not. Maybe it's that in even seemingly the most selfless moment of abdication of ego, there's always an element that keeps an eye open for how we are and who we are. That erasure is never fully possible. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of how Simone Weil never actually converted to Catholicism. And she was always staying on, the, on that middle point between like acceptance and being outside. I want to stick with the crossbar at the top of the Velasquez painting. It's like perfectly straight across like, the, the, the painting. It seems rather thick. It seems much larger than Christ's arms and, and body. And it's something that does seem very threatening or uh, contorting about it. I have two thoughts about this. One is there's a great Lucas Cranach crucifixion from 1503, so from just before the Reformation, when even the Northern painters are doing things in this full-bodied, unapologetic, sensuous way. And I think the word I use to describe the cross, it's the vertical part of the cross there, is nauseating in the sense that it's so physical that it's not even Jesus's cross. It's the cross of one of the thieves that is shown 
in the immediate foreground. And the knots in the wood are so palpable. And moreover, they're so literally foregrounded that it's almost makes me physically ill. So to your point, Josh, I feel like there's something uncanny about about that crossbar in the Velazquez, that it's it's a little bit of a Trump Loy effect. And the, the scariness of Trump Loy is always in place where it's like a magician who does something that is so not just amazing, but frankly disturbing. Like when David Blaine levitates off the ground or stays submerged in water for eight minutes or something like that. Velazquez is a little bit uncanny in that way. So, I mean, almost too good of a painter. It's a little bit disturbing. So that's one thing I think of. And then the second is related, but importantly different that, you know, that crossbar seems so self-referential to the actual two dimensions of the canvas, first of all. So unlike the Zerberon, but also even referential to the stretcher, like the wooden stretcher of the canvas that you would be able to glimpse on the back of side of it. And it's in that sense a meta picture. It's a picture about the materials of representation. And that can be eerie in its own way too. I mentioned Dali before, but it's really not at all implausible to draw a genealogical connection between Dali's godless surrealism and this picture. And to say maybe in concert with the eyes, the quote unquote eyes in the in the crossbar, this is implausible, but somehow beguiling that the work needs to almost engage with some kind of paganistic magical powers, which are not really exactly those of Christianity, but are some other force in order to inhabit more fully its zone and realm of faith. Um, I mean, what comes to mind for me is the familiarity, perhaps over-familiarity with that scene, Christ on the Cross. And maybe this has something to do with Professor Nemirov's comments about the pagan or the uncanny. But to me, it seems that the painting brings back or reawakens the sense of the scandal that is the crucifixion and the scandal that is the figure of Christ. So it's kind of a shock in that way. Can you say more about that, the scandal? That comes to mind, that word, because I was recently reading Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness. It's her memoirs. And she was also, uh, at the time, thinking about whether she could join the church or not. And she ended up doing so. But as she developed her idea of what kind of relationship she thought that the church had to Christ, she chanced upon a quote by Romano Guardini, a theologian, whom actually Pope Francis um, draws from a lot. And the quote goes, the church is the rock upon which or maybe it's something like um, Christ is, is a scandal to the church. Christ is crucified on the church. So I guess for me, it's it's really important to retain that element that um, just totally, I guess, scandalizes. I think to something, again, from Pope Francis, he has mentioned that he abhors golden crosses, silver crosses. And actually back to the semi-theme of room decorating, when I was trying to find a crucifix to hang up in this bedroom, I engaged in the uncanniest of all practices, which is online shopping for a crucifix. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not um, not a comforting experience. I think there are crosses adorned with Looney Tunes characters. There are ones that look haunted, um, <laughs> not in a good way. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to remember that it was two pieces of wood on which a human being, many human beings were killed. And it's easy to gild over that. 
One thing that we were talking about over email before was this idea of the free and clear or the way in which art is somewhat determined by its historical context, but also has this otherness to it. I think Alex in this little short essay called Art is Not an Archive writes, as our historians, we hope to find an archival document that explains the work of art. What this practice omits, however, is the otherness of art. And I think part of what you're raising here is like, what kinds of thoughts does art allow and where does this otherness come from and how do you see it? Actually, Professor Nemirov, I'm in the process of writing you a letter that has been long overdue. And maybe by saying this, I, I will renege the need for the letter to be sent. But I've been listening recently to Schubert's Leader. And perhaps it's because of something of a drought I've been experiencing in terms of my classes or maybe just where I am right now. And I guess the only way I can describe it is being touched. Listening to Schubert's Leader a couple nights ago reminded me of the Russian fairy tale of the little match girl and how for a brief moment upon striking these matches in the cold Russian winter, she sees a feast, um, then she sees a bed, and then finally it's her grandmother there to take her home. And I know you're not supposed to do this with classical music, but I listened to one song on repeat probably 52 times in one night, and I felt I could only know who I was in that brief sort of burning out of a match while listening to that. And I knew that there was something bigger and more important than me in just listening to that short, short song. It was only three minutes long. I felt like I knew who I was, but only for a moment. Yeah, that's fantastic, Emily. Thank you. I see the halo of Christ, and I think I wonder if the analogy here is that the picture itself is a flare, a brief flare that we return to again and again that gives us a sense of direction or possibility. How was it that you put it, Emily, that when, you know, in listening to the song 52 times, it produces what? To me, I think that they're intertwined. So in the story of the little match girl, it usually ends with um, a crowd of people going about their morning grocery run and seeing the body of a little girl who's frozen to death with three burnt out blackened matches at her side. But when the story ends, do we say that's all it was, that these were just the um, hallucinations of a pauper? And do we only respond? Bond by trying to improve material conditions, of course. Um, but I think the story is about something more than that. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. So maybe Josh, with this picture too, it's um, or the the otherness of art is its capacity to deliver us into this state of awareness or recognition uh, that is otherwise off limits to us. Yeah, and part of what I think is so compelling about the account both of you are giving is like the momentary nature. It does feel very gentle, very light. And I think today we're surrounded by heaviness, by the end of the world, and there aren't very many moments of lightness of a serious kind of lightness. I'm curious where you find these moments of lightness that don't ignore like the real world that's around us, but bring you into it in a way that's more immediate than the daily news. Well, I mean, there are a lot of theories about religion that have to do with, oh, it's it's something that we need when we're going through a hard time. Um, it's something we need when we're about to die. And I don't know if I would I would limit it to that. So the, maybe the, the little girl in the Russian winter really did receive a feast and a homecoming. 
I just responding to Emily's words, I think of the picture again and think that not only does it split the difference between lightness and heaviness, Josh, because the body of Jesus is light in certain ways. It's um, it's not sort of sagging down, really, especially, and it seems related to the canvas itself, which, of course, is historically a medium that artists began using because it was lighter and more portable than the big panel of wood. I, I, I'm assuming this is a painting on canvas. Uh, but beyond that, about the momentary and relating also to Emily's point about eyelids and my point about the substan- the sort of Eucharistic substantiality of the whole illusion that, you know, yes, to the little match girl, the hallucination of the real, you know, that the, the real, the feast, the substance comes to us in hallucinations. And I love that as a definition of faith and I'm just writing it down and you know I'm just paraphrasing what Emily says. I can think of aspects of that related to the natural world, somewhat coincident with Jesus on the cross there. I took a walk last Tuesday, so a week ago tomorrow, um, just to sort of take the, take a moment because it was my the day of publication of my book. And, you know, it was recommended to me that I try to be in the moment a little bit that day. So I did something uncharacteristic and took a walk and sat in a park for a long time. And I was looking at this redwood tree for quite a while and it was a windy day and it was blowing much as would a fern. It really looked like a fern that was 125 feet tall. And I was seeing how elastic, completely elastic, the whole spine, the whole trunk of the tree is. And that was, if you like, a real hallucination, which then becomes an icon in memory and in in person of that day and uh, you know that that's a moment on earth which is of faith and mystery as well as something that is every day i suppose i did have i do have a very vague question i I asked all my guests on this podcast which is what is life that's yeah a hard one (laughs) Um, I guess life is, for me, our indebtedness to God and living in the cavity of God. Well, in my poor means, I would say something like what I just described is a moment of being rather than just existing. Moments of love and togetherness with family and friends are also also produce that feeling, but uh, I certainly don't have a, a, a really good answer for that. And the other side of the question is, how do you do that? Is there a practice or activity that allows you to experience those moments, however fleeting? I think what you're doing stops that from happening right now, <laughs> Josh. I'm not saying that in a, in a mean way, I, but it's a good example. I think like trying to instrumentalize it or trying to make it happen makes it not happen. Well, I think the the static ceremony of paintings like the one we've talked about today are one place where lightning can strike and of fables like the one Emily has talked about. So works of art, stories, music, and then perhaps also related to what Emily said earlier, the way they can solicit our attention without needing to know that we're even present can help to create this feeling where it's not all about us and our configured identity and individualities. Um, I think that's a good point to pause our discussion for today. And in closing, can I ask you some underrated, overrated questions? Sure. 
The first one is libraries. Perhaps, Josh, like some of your previous guests, I uh, have trouble with the question of under and overrating things because the construct is dependent on the esteem of others. As someone who's worked in a library, though, I will say, and someone who's been deprived of access to a library in the past year, they're definitely underrated. What about attention? This is, again, one of those either an obvious answer or just one that's very hard to say it's either over or or underestimated. Actually, I take that back. As Simone Weil writes, when most students hear the word attention or pay attention or focus, they clench their muscles, their veins pop, and it's sort of this uncomfortable, tense, muscular state of just almost harming oneself and trying to um, force every cell of the body to do something. And I think for her, what she meant by attention was quite the opposite. It had something a lot more to do with taking in the wholeness of what you're in front of at the time. And there's this idea that grace fills that cavity and that what happens is desire that didn't exist before can come to exist. Can I get you to say more about Simone Weil? Simone Weil was a French philosopher. She's really well known for... It's kind of hard to describe a person that one has been spending so much close time with. I guess I should say I I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Simone Weil, and to this day have not been able to part from her. She died in 1943. She was born, I think, in 1909. So her life was bookended by the two world wars. And being the kind of person she was, she was unable to not be affected by that. Her death was tragic and involved a state of desperation inspiration, starvation, sickness, and alienation from those she loved. But what she left behind was a body of work mostly found in notebook entries that devote themselves to the cultivation of attention, as we've spoken of, and also the notion that we are only separated from God by ourselves. And finally, what about debt? Especially in this theological sense in which life is a gift given to humanity and you spend your whole life through religion trying to repay that unforgivable debt back to God. In Christian theology, this is known as atonement theory. And it's the idea that because we're so offensive to God for not keeping up our end of the bargain, a sinless figure like Jesus had to be sacrificed to assuage the wrath of God. And I have trouble with this theory. For one, I think it anthropomorphizes God in a way that I'm not comfortable with. For example, St. Anselm will talk about God as a father. Your body is rented to you. Well, as long as you're living in my house, you can't do this and that. And our problem is the whole cosmos is God's house. <laughs> so we can't really rent a condo somewhere else and make it on our own because by definition, we're completely indebted. I would say that it doesn't bother me that much because I find it so implausible. I prefer to think of it as a tragedy. So rather than God mad at us for not upholding our side of the bargain, what if it's actually that God loved us so much that to create us, he had to carve a piece out of himself and that we're in love with each other, but we can never be together. I'm not fully on that bandwagon, of course, because I think there is a way that one can be with God. I haven't experienced it, but I don't, I don't fully jump there, but I think there's something to it. I, I find both to be very absurd or like not absurd, but like very, um, what's the right word for it? Mythical visions. Also really silly and like unbelievable. Like if that was in like some like blockbuster movie, you walk out of the theater saying, ah, it didn't seem realistic to me. 
Yeah, you know, I had a friend of mine who was very dear to my heart, and she said to me during one Bible study, did I mention she was an econ major? She said, uh, you know, Jesus' death on the cross, if you think about it, great ROI, return on investment. (laughs) Might have been really painful, but you struggle with it, he struggles with it, and the whole world gets saved. So pretty good net gain. And the only way that I can think about it so that it isn't that way is to read the Gospel of John and think about the cosmic Christ. And rather than thinking about the crucifixion as this one story or one historical event that was a linchpin of the universe. Think about it instead as the the lamb that was crucified and sacrificed since the beginning of creation. Basically, that it's a condition of our existence. It's sort of like going insane in a way, because once you get on this train, like I am kind of on, it's hard to not see the crucifixion everywhere you look. I was watching a nature documentary of all things. You know, the Planet Earth documentaries keep getting more dire as time (laughs) passes. David Attenborough increasingly both grows more frail and more upset with us. Um, There was one episode where these walruses were crammed on an island because of the melting ice and they were, because of the lack of space, climbing up a craggy mountain, their ankles, or I don't even know what part of the body it is, but they seem like joints, like heels, bleeding, scratched by rocks. And in the end, I mean, they're not graceful animals for not being able to get back down. Hundreds of them essentially climb this mountain and jump off. I mean, they don't mean to, but they can't get down. And so they stay either starve or they fall off and get dashed against the rocks. And when I saw that, I had to turn it off because in those animals, I saw Christ ascending the mountain of Golgotha. Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you, Josh, for inviting me. Well, thank you both for this conversation.